In the grounds of New Lanark, which is a former 18th century cotton spinning mill village on the banks of the Fall of, Fall of Clyde, now a World Heritage Site, there is, as many of you will know, having visited it, a reconstruction of an early 19th century schoolroom by Robert Owen, the great philanthropist. And in this school is a globe uh, and some wall charts, some of which you can see on the screen behind me, uh, and some fascinating charts uh, sketching the world and the nations as then known. And parts of the map look very familiar, parts very sparse. Southern Africa, Australasia, of course, almost blank spaces. And Genesis 10 reminds me uh, somewhat of those schoolroom charts. For here we have a very ancient map plotting people groups and cities and political realities in the very earliest days of human civilization. We don't know when this chapter was compiled. We don't know by whom. It reads like a genealogy. Uh, It's organized in a symmetrical way, as you saw, as William read, around Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But actually, it's somewhat different, and its purpose is certainly more than pure information. It stands here as an integral part of God's great story of redemption. This chapter is not some fascinating digression in human geography. It is a vision of the world as God wants us to see it. So let's begin by looking at a few key features of this table of nations, as it is often referred to. First, notice that unlike the genealogy of Genesis 5, which some of us looked at three weeks ago, there is no mention here of people's ages, Their deaths are not mentioned, which was very prominent, remember, in chapter 5. And although some of the names are personal names, such as Japheth and Nimrod, other names are clearly place names, Sidon, Sheba. And many refer, of course, to whole people groups, the Ludim, the Kaftori, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and so on. In other words, what we have here is not so much a simple family tree as a much more general laying out of the interrelationship of ethnic and political groups in the ancient world. The word translated sons in this new NIV translation refers not to strictly biological links between parent and son, but more generally means descendant or successor or even people affiliated with them. Someone, one of the little commentaries, has given the rather amusing analogy of our own history 
and this is aimed at winding up all our transatlantic cousins who are still high on Thanksgiving turkey. The descendants of Europe, Britain, France, and Spain. Britain became the father of America and Canada. To Spain, also children were born, California, Mexico. The descendants of America, Virginia, Georgia, Carolina. Georgia became the father of Atlanta, Augusta, and Savannah. Well, not very PC, but you get the point. And second, it is clear from other Old Testament references, Deuteronomy and elsewhere, that this list certainly is not every known ancient people group uh, that there was. Uh, Significantly, there are 70 names. 70 being the traditional round number of a large group of descendants. Jacob's family consisted of 70 individuals, and so Israel becomes a sort of microcosm of the whole of humanity portrayed here. You remember Jesus sent out 70 disciples on mission uh, to the nations, as it were. Third, notice as we begin that although this is an account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the order in which they are then taken is reversed. So first in the list are the descendants of Japheth, the people of the distant north, uh, the groups that Israel had least contact with, Then comes the Hamites, the descendants of Ham, including the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Canaanites, who were, of course, Israel's most influential and most feared neighbors. And finally, there is a lingering over the descendants of Shem, the Semites, who, of course, include the forefathers of Israel herself. The list For Japheth and Ham, you notice, consist of only three generations, whereas in the case of Shem, there are six generations listed. And as we saw last time when we looked at a genealogy in chapter 5, and we'll see it again next week with Angus as we look at chapter 11, uh, there is a brief mention of the non-Abrahamic branches of the tree, but then a real focusing on the line that leads to God's calling of Abraham and his family. So why this chapter? And why, in particular, does it come before the story of Babel, where the division of the languages and the scattering of the nations is explained? Seems the wrong way around. The answer is that the purpose of this chapter is that quite deliberately, before the story of the judgment of Babel, before the calling of Abraham, before the calling of the election of Israel to be God's chosen people, before the story of redemption from Abraham to Jesus, before all that, there is this statement that God is the creator of and is concerned for all the nations of the world. Next week is Advent 
Sunday. And woven into the birth narrative of Luke's account is a genealogy that takes us right back here to Shem, to Noah, to Seth, and to Adam. Here as there, a landscaping of all humanity forms the backcloth to God's story of salvation. This table of nations underlines the common origin and therefore the unity of all the nations of the world. All human beings are sons of Adam and sons of Noah. We all share the same nature. We all breathe the same air. We all live on the same planet. We all owe our lives to the same creator And ultimately, we are all accountable to the same God. This is the glorious vision of Genesis chapter 10. This chapter is not just some happy hunting ground for researchers into early antiquity. It is the foundation to a biblical understanding of human rights. It is the basis for all international peace and cooperation, and in specifically Christian terms, is the starting point for any understanding of world mission. So what I want to do briefly before we come to communion is just to unpack this with you with four simple statements. And here's the first. It tells us that all the nations of the world are important to God. Table begins, as we said, with the descendants of Japheth. You may want to just look down at that list from verse 2. Seven of his sons are listed Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yavan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. These are the people of the north and the west of what would become Israel. Some of the names we may recognize Magog, for example. It's one of the powerful nations we encountered when we looked recently at the book of Ezekiel, a land in the furthest most parts of the north. Whether the two are connected, we're not sure. Medai, according to Assyrian texts, refer to the Medes. Yavan denotes the Greeks. Cuneiform texts seem to locate Meshech and Tubal as the Asiatic um, uh, Turkey, the Asia Minor region. And then if you look on to verse 6 to 20, come the descendants of Ham. Here are the people of Canaan, and then south into Africa, Cush, traditionally Ethiopia, but including other black African peoples, Mishraim, Egypt, put possibly Libya, and Canaan. And the table, understandably, lingers over Canaan and its tribes, which are going to feature so prominently in the story of the conquest. Interestingly, the borders of Canaan are quite different to those described later in the Old Testament. And also interesting is this digression about a mysterious figure called Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior and hunter before the Lord. His kingdom is traditionally identified with ancient Babylon and Assyria and credited here 
as the founder of Nineveh and some of the other great cities of that later empire. And then finally, if you look on to verse 21 to 31, the descendants of Shem. Shem, the ancestor of all the sons of Eber, possibly meaning the Hebrews. And here, along with other non-Abrahamic branches, are the key line of Ashphasak, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Serug, Nehor, Terah, and then climactically, Abraham. So here they are, the seven representative nations of the ancient known world, all named because they are all important to God. When William Carey, born in 1761 and the founder of the Baptist Missionary Society, was a young cobbler in a town near Northampton. He made a homemade world map which he put on his shoe shop wall. He couldn't afford a globe. He had several large sheets of paper which he pasted together and he drew every known nation of the world at that time. And as he read, particularly the voyages of Captain Cook in 1772 and 1776, he would read avidly what was going on in the discovery of the world, and he would add new names to this map of the world. And it became the basis, as you see here, of his famous mission statistics, his famous inquiry, the first ever global survey printed. At the bottom right-hand corner, apparently, roughly where Australia was, was the entry, Australia equals New Holland, 12 million pagans, one or two Christian ministers. How he estimated the population, I have no idea. It was said that when Carey, for a short while, became a schoolteacher and taught his pupils geography, Sometimes tears would come to his eyes as he taught about the world. Every nation matters to God. But secondly, all nations of the world are blessed by God. The story of the Tower of Babel that we're going to come to next week is going to emphasize the negative aspects of this table It's going to talk about the divisions and the confusion by language. But here, in contrast, this chapter is a direct continuation of the story of Noah. That is what we are meant to see. Noah steps out of the ark. And as we thought with John last week, he says in chapter 9, verse 1, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And here is the fulfillment of those words to Noah. A key word in this chapter is the word spread. Look at verse 5. From these, the maritime people spread out 
into the territories. Verse 18, later the Canaanite clan scattered, a related word, spread out. Verse 32, from these the nations spread out over all the earth. Here is a picture of international growth and flourishing, of unity and diversity. It is a fulfillment of the creation mandate and the divine blessing of creation. One writer sets out the chapters that we've been looking at in this way over the last few weeks. And what she brings out, Ida Glaser, is the contrast between the genealogy of chapter 5 with something like the refrain, together Seth lived a total of 912 years and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, what she calls the genealogy of death. But this table which she calls the genealogy of life, where there is growth and migration and hope. And of course, though death is a reality, there is no mention of it. Here, a genealogy of life. God blesses all the nations. Human diversity and human languages are celebrated and point to the one who blesses all. Do you remember... Paul's great words as he preached in Athens. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundary of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to find him and find, uh, for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. And third, all nations of the world, says this chapter, are subject to God. There is a sense in which the demarcation of the people groups here have something of a political feel to them. The list of nations, as I have said, is arranged according to how near or how distant they are from what would be Israel and how politically significant they would become. And this emphasis on power and politics becomes particularly clear in that digression I've mentioned in verses 8 to 12 on this strange character, Nimrod. He is portrayed here as the archetypical man of power and authority. He's a born leader. The fact that he is a mighty hunter before the Lord doesn't mean the Lord approves, just that the Lord sees. And in fact, one suggestion of the meaning of the name Nimrod is that it derives from the Hebrew word to rebel. So here perhaps is depicted the first imperialist, the first empire builder, a foreshadowing of the pride of Babel that we will look at next week, and therefore an implicit warning, all this is before the Lord. All nations are subject to God. And finally, all nations of the world are objects of God's redeeming love. The story of beginnings is rapidly moving to its end. It is moving towards the choosing of one particular man, Abraham, and one particular people, Israel, God's treasured possession, 
from whom will come one Messiah, Jesus. But the whole purpose here is that as God said to Abraham later on, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Israel is called to be a light to these nations of Genesis 10. Jesus, whose advent we celebrate next week, is the saviour of these nations of Genesis chapter 10. And here is this whole world, the world of the nations laid out before us, of its human diversity, and yet uh, nations that are blessed by God and subject to God and within God's redeeming purposes. I want to end with two stories. The first story, which I mentioned before some time ago when we preached through Acts, is the story of a remarkable South African clergyman called Dr. Beers Noday, who was born in 1915 in the Transvaal and followed his father both into the Dutch Reformed Church and into a secretive, racist, right-wing group, the Broederbond, actively supporting apartheid. But when Beers came to university to be chaplain of the University of Pretoria, for the first time through his students who challenged him, he was challenged to reread Genesis 10 and Acts 17 differently. For these had been texts that had been used to emphasize the division of the nations. And slowly he began to see that the purpose of this chapter, the purpose of these parts of the Bible, was not to support ethnic separation, but rather to emphasize human unity and human harmony. He resigned from the Dutch Reformed Church, He was later imprisoned for his anti-apartheid stance. And it reminds us this morning that there is no room at all in Christian discipleship for any form of racism or prideful nationalism. This is the message of Genesis chapter 10. And secondly, a fairly random story which I happened to read this week from the Bible Society News, uh, a story of a group of people in Kush, in South Sudan. Fish are central to the Shilluk people of South Sudan. And we have Arab here this morning, who will nod, I hope, appreciatively of my mention of his homeland The fish, they eat fish, they sell fish, they fall asleep thinking about fish. Fish are everything to them. A husband has a legal right to divorce his wife if she does not cook the head of a fish and serve it to him. Just note this, Lindsay. (laughs) Literacy rates in South Sudan are very low. Only 30% of people, of men, and 10% of women can read and write. And the article goes on to talk about the fact that the first Shilluk Bible was finally translated and printed uh, four years ago. 
And one of the local professors who was one of the sponsors of this project um, begins to try and promote the Bible and he finds that there is very little reception to this new Bible Society Bible. Until he read out loud from Mark chapter 1 verse 17, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And Matthew 14, 16 to 21, about how 5,000 people were fed with two fish and loaves. And it says he noticed that people began to sit up and listen intently once fish were mentioned. And he says, the professor, I caught two fish with one hook. I got them involved in literacy and I got them reading the Bible. And the article goes on to talk about the establishment of a little Christian community here in this remote tribe in South Sudan. And I say that as I end. Because the God who loves all the nations is a God who is powerfully at work today in all these nations and many more. And how we can rejoice as we come to communion now that God's Spirit, that the risen Christ is alive and at work in these nations across the world. Christ is indeed the Savior of the world. And we as Christians are called intentionally to relate to the nation. For me, the Genesis 10 person who I most admire is Patrick Johnson. This remarkable mission man who has given the second half of his life to compiling a spectacular prayer guide. And if you haven't got a copy, I warmly commend you buy a copy. Every nation of the world listed with a little bit about its geography, about the church, about the political situation, about how to pray for that nation. It is a most remarkable Genesis 10 contemporary compilation. We can relate to the world, can't we, here in St. Andrews. Through befriending, and it's not too late to talk to Fiona about somebody in this town, who needs befriending, and I can assure you there are a lot of lonely internationals walking around this town. Through Friends International, through our own hospitality, through the Fruit Farm Ministry, and through prayer. God's word to us this morning is that the nations of the world matter. And for Christian discipleship, there needs to be an intentional following of God's heart to those nations. And I end with this quote from William Carey. To know God's will, we need an open Bible and an open map. And I'd like to suggest that Genesis 10 is both those things together. Let's pray.
Lord of the nations, Saviour of the whole world. Thank you that you can speak through this ancient compilation of a table of the world people groups. And thank you as we worship you here in the warmth of this little town that we worship the creator of the whole earth, the one who loves and blesses all nations and longs in the words of Jesus that we will take his message to those nations. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name.